0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is Valerie, your host, and I am here with my sweet husband, Nathan. How are you today, Nathan?
1: I'm wonderful. I like that butter (laughs) up.
0: What is that? What do you mean?
1: Sweet husband.
0: Oh, true. Use
1: another adjective.
0: No. Now I'm feeling awkward. (laughs) Okay. We are going to... uh, Today you have uh, part three of a five-part series on Brian McLaren's book, Do I Stay Christian? It's a 10. Well, what he does is he goes through 10 points on the side of no, meaning 10 criticisms of Christianity in general, um, especially uh, particularly institutional Christianity. Right. And then 10 points on the side of yes, reasons why to stay Christian. Would you quickly just review us through uh, points, uh, the the first four points on the side of no, Nathan, and the first four points on the side of yes, as we kind of get this going? So
1: the points we've already talked about on the no side, the reason to leave institutionalized Christianity is number one, because it uh, has brutalized its mother, meaning Jews and Judaism. Number two, because it has brutalized other Christians who have dissented. Number three was because it has a huge global death toll uh, and what we would call global imperialism, imperialism or colonization. And number four, because it is run by and supports loyal company men who force their, leader, their, their followers to often turn off their brains. On the side of staying with institutionalized religion, the, uh, the pros, number one, because leaving hurts allies and gives further power uh, to people who shouldn't have unchecked power. Number two, because there are other options besides staying compliantly or leaving defiantly Uh, namely staying within the institution, but working for change. Number three was the question from the New Testament, where shall I go? Um, There aren't necessarily better options. And number four, because Christianity is still relatively in its infancy compared to civilization and still has hope for change.
0: Thank you. What a great little opening summary. Okay, so number five Uh, The fifth reason that he uh, goes into as far as uh, why to leave or on the side of no, to not stay Christian is because of Christianity's real master, money. Mm -hmm. And so he goes deeply into this idea that so much of what really governs churches in general is, is money itself. One of the examples that he gives here has to do with, hold on, sorry, I'm on the wrong page here. He quotes a really great thinker by the name of Dorothy Day. Just a second. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic worker movement talks about the problems that come. She says this, our problems stem from our acceptance of this filthy, rotten system. The system in question is assumed to be capitalism. But if you look deeply into Dorothy Day's work, what comes up is very different. Uh, Dorothy was interviewed in an article titled Money and the Middle Class Christian in the National Catholic Register. She spoke about the problems plaguing the institutional church, including the decline in numbers of men applying for the priesthood and the closing of church buildings. When asked what the cause of these problems might be, she didn't blame them on secularism or on external persecution. She said... I feel that over and over again in history, the church has become so corrupt, it just cries out to heaven for vengeance. I think it's a result of the corruption in the institutional church through money and through their acceptance of this lousy, rotten system. For day, what was rotten and lousy was the corruption in the institutional church itself, and especially systemic corruption related to money. hmm Let's let all that sink in for a second. What she's trying to communicate to us is institutions themselves are not the problem. The problem is institutionalism. Let me see if I can say that again. Is institutionalism, the tendency of institutions to abandon their mission for which they were created and instead refine their mission as absolute loyalty to their own financial bottom line Oh, man, what a tendency that we uh, as uh, Christian churches and what we ourselves struggle with.
1: Yeah. So, you know, said in slightly different words. Yeah. As churches grow and progress, they they move their focus from their original mission to self-preservation. Yeah. How do we keep ourselves growing and moving forward? And money plays a huge part in
0: that. It's such a human problem, right? In other words, if you look at... Capitalism in general, right? And we are a Western religion that started in the 19th century, right. right? We are, we we are the birth of our our faith. the the origin story of our faith is one where we were in poverty, where we struggled, mm-hmm. where we suffered, even up clear through about the middle of the 20th century, about 1950s. Mm-hmm. We have a little bit of a financial trauma history where we just couldn't make ends meet, and also we were born under the, the value system of upward mobility right. in early America. And so in some ways, there are a lot of vulnerabilities that we are subject to and have been subject to since the very, very beginnings of the church. And so when I was reading D. Michael Quinn's Extensions of Power, he talked a lot about how deeply it, we have been impacted by our own history's relationship and very complex relationship with money, which I think really in some ways explains some of our current issues with hoarding money, because okay. those of us who have suffered and struggled with poverty tend to have an unhealthy relationship with a, with a, the principle of scarcity, and we behave as if there is scarcity that isn't there anymore,
1: right. and so
0: we hoard we hoard funds because we fear what it felt like to be in poverty.
1: Yeah, and so I think you know a couple of things come up for me as you're as you're saying that and yeah. we're talking about that. Um, you know, one is is that. You know, members of the church donate their tithing in good faith and, and pay their fast offerings in good faith, that the the principal purpose of those, those sacred funds is to make the world a better place, to bless God's children. And I think for a lot of people, when it came out, uh, how much money the church was holding onto in the Enzyme Peak Fund, when, when that became public knowledge, um, after the Larson brothers um, made that uh, public knowledge, there were a lot of us that questioned and, and, and felt a little bit betrayed by, by that revelation. The other thing that comes up for me, and, and he talks about this in his book, is that money necessarily creates a conflict of interest. Yeah. When and, and and maybe a little bit less in our faith than other faiths who pay their clergy. But but when you have paid clergy, clergy are always walking this balance between telling people what they need to hear and what they want to hear, because what they want to hear brings in dollars and what they need to hear often hurts their feelings. And so there is this kind of weird dynamic that exists when you have a paid clergy.
0: Well, but I think I will, I'm going to push back just a tiny bit, babe, because we do have a paid clergy. We say we don't, but at the higher levels,
1: at the higher levels of the church, we certainly do. Not only
0: are they paid, but they're paid Remarkably well, yeah, and so they don't talk about no. That that is something that once again is is a shock to some people when they feel like a lot of the one of our selling points is you know Mm -hmm. we're a we're a service organization. Everybody works for free, right? And yet, which I
1: said millions of times as a missionary, and
0: it's not necessarily true. (laughs) And so you end up having that kind of conflict of interest, which is, and again, it's it's normal. I don't want to demonize those who who are part of the paid ministry. They have their self interest at heart as do all of us. Sure. When it comes to the conflict that comes when I I want to continue to to sustain my family and do so well, but it doesn't always necessarily benefit me when I am saying something that is in the best interest of truth and goodness, but it may hurt me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So so conflict of interest definitely comes up. He quotes the scripture from the New Testament where Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. And and I think that's something that we really have to look at. You know are we trying to serve two masters are we trying to be spiritual but also temporal in a way where they're conflicting with each other the the, the other thing that came up to for me as i think about in our own religion tithing settlement and and we go to we go to meet with the bishop once a year to talk about whether or not we've paid a full tithing and i always thought it was kind of odd we don't talk about anything else and i had a bishop one time say and i think this is a pretty uh, common response well, tithing is something that you can do perfectly. So it's really easy to identify whether or not you've done it perfectly because you know, it's a mathematical principle. Well, that's BS. Let's <laughs> just be honest. Okay. I can be very honest about whether I live the word of wisdom. That's one that I can tell if I've done it perfectly or not. It's absolutely true that the church is worried about money. Yeah, It's in the, tith- the temple recommend view, which it didn't used to be and it's got its own special meeting with the bishop once a year. And I think that it's an unhealthy relationship. I think we gotta be very, very careful about what place we give money in our religious institution.
0: You know, and that's a tricky kind of question, Nathan, because uh, you and I both also, I mean, this is complex, right? As is everything, because you and I feel really strongly about the principle of, of the tithe, that it is incredibly refining to be able to not be over identified with our, our dollars. Absolutely. And so on the one hand, we feel very, very powerfully that for us to tithe is, is incredibly important. On the other hand, when it feels like there is control or manipulation, yes associated with the extracting of our tithes, it stops being a free will offering and it stops coming from a place of our own, like what feels right to us. And it, it, it muddies the relationship when we feel like we have to do this thing for God to love us right. or for us to be able to participate in the symbology that happens in helping us come closer to God through the temple.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's where it starts to get a little bit messy.
1: Yeah. When fear becomes the primary motivation to have people pay their tithing, they're missing the point. And, and and I agree with you on 100% of what you just said. I love giving 10% of my income to charity. I think it teaches me not to put my arm, my, my trust on the arm of the flesh or to, to give money and undue power in my own life by saying, yes, I absolutely give 10% of my money to good causes. But I do that because I want to be more like Christ. I want to learn how to love the way that he would love, not because somebody is holding uh, over my head a, the, the weapon of the sacrament or a temple recommend or salvation. Salvation, exactly, yeah. right? And so, yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with that principle. I'm not saying don't pay tithing. I'm not saying don't give 10% of your money to good causes to make the world a better place. I'm saying the church needs to change its relationship with money. And when I go into a charity to study a charity, I look at a third party's assessment of how much of the money I give to that charity goes to the actual cause and how much goes to administrative costs. And I'm not opposed to administrative costs. You have to have people running organizations. But if if, a, if the Catholic Charities or the International Red Cross publicly post because a third party has audited them and they say they give 90 plus percent of the money to the cause and only 10 percent is administrative, I love that. Yeah. I know that my money is going to a good cause. I am a little concerned that the church doesn't give that same information.
0: Yes. Well, and I think too to to me what I'm thinking about too, and I'm I'm gonna circle us back to what we talked about at the beginning of our time together today regarding money and the complex relationship that, that the church has with money is that uh, the church has grown exponentially, especially, you know, not not recently, <laughs> but but in recent past. And so I think when organizations grow quickly, it does become a bit of an arduous task to know how to manage an organization that becomes a worldwide kind of institution. And it does have to adopt some practices and principles that look a lot like a company mm-hmm. and that's that's the nature of the beast while the, the problem that i run into is that even as that is happening the most integrity-based institutions churches and otherwise are highly committed to transparency right i don't have a problem with career people in churches pastors of other churches or 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 People in our church,
1: educators, administrators, making, making
0: a, a salary. As long as it is, there is transparency around what is going on. The problem I tend to have is when we are misinformed or led to believe it is one thing. And then later come to find out that it is a different thing. Yeah, That to me is the larger problem than something being an organization where dollars are spent and are even given as, as salaries or whatever. It, it keeps everybody honest. And it keeps everybody, um, once again, you talked in another podcast about uh, one way loyalty Mm -hmm. and the loyalty that is the most integrity based loyalty means that we are loyal to um, those who who are administrators of our church and they are loyal to us and telling us exactly where our dollars are going so that it feels like. It is a two-way agreement where everybody is understanding exactly what kind of a relationship we are in. Absolutely. And yeah. if that happens, Amen. then that's then I feel okay about that. Even Amen. right. Okay. Yeah. So
1: transparency.
0: Yes. Okay. So let's move on to point number two. Okay. So point number one was was of course uh, because of Christianity's real master money. Point number two is uh, because of the white Christian old boys network or white patriarchy okay so we have touched a little bit on this in our past episode um mclaren actually distinguishes the difference between christianity's loyal company men institutionalism and christian old boys network white patriarchy i i personally think there is a a whole truckload of crossover on this Mm -hmm. but let's go ahead and just talk about what he says so he defines patriarchy as The name for this time-honored system defined as a political social system that insists that males are inherently dominating, superior to everything and everyone around them who are deemed weak, especially females, and that these men are endowed with the right to dominate and rule over the weak and to maintain that dominance through various forms of psychological terrorism and violence." A patriarchy is the single most life-threatening social disease assaulting the male body and spirit in our nation. You'll notice that it's assaulting the male body. Patriarchy hurts its victims, and its victims are both male and female. McLaren goes on to say, the cocktail of whiteness, Christianity, and patriarchal machismo packs a punch, packs such a punch that white Christian males can occasionally confer limited power on the non-Christian, I'm sorry, on the non-white Christian male, or they can even confer power on a woman. And this helps if she is a submissive wife or daughter of the white Christian, (laughs) (laughs) because then they can control her even more. Finally, McLaren says patriarchy has shown a remarkable tenacity um, in spite of the fact that it is so dangerous and corrosive to both men and women throughout history, in some ways it has become, uh, it's so pervasive um, as to have become invisible. Anything you want to add to that, Nate?
1: Oh, lots. <laughs>
0: There's so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, so another thing that he points out is that uh, it's not just the current state of Christianity that's dominated by white males, but all throughout history, it's been dominated by white males. It's, it's top theologians, it's top scholars and writers and leaders have predominantly been White males, um, and even some of the the, for instance, the females that we've talked about in other podcasts, like Teresa of Avila, um, Joan of Arc, others who have at time had some really good thoughts and even drawn the attention of the church. They really haven't been widely recognized for the great thinkers and leaders that they were until recently, when we finally made it okay to recognize women for for what they are. So it's a It's a current problem, but it's also a historical problem
0: well it's a it's a it's a current problem because it goes so deeply back into history as a matter of fact Brian right. Mclaren says after all, God in a traditional monotheistic system is commonly imagined as a zeus like super patriarch ready to smite with violence all who besmirch his patriarchal honor <laughs> and meaning that because we have framed. This is, again, Christianity at large, God as a very powerful white man. Mm-hmm. It's so widely accepted that this is our norm for what we worship that we almost don't even recognize how corrosive and damaging this is. What this ends up doing is it makes Christianity itself a, very, a pretty dangerous place for a lot of people. McLaren says this, a white Christian patriarchal universe is not a safe place for women, children, racial and religious minorities, nonconformists, neither is it a safe place for the earth and non-human creations. A white Christian patriarchal universe is, in contrast, super hospitable for two kinds of men, dominant, aggressive, often narcissistic alpha males characterized by what is often called toxic masculinity, and the beta males who gain power by being the alpha's subservient, loyal yes men right the alphas and the betas whom we have called christian company men often coexist in an old boys network of mutual protection and mutual benefit
1: yeah and i mean we see it unfortunately in our own church um you know i think elder uchtdorf was the first non-us or canadian apostle you know excluding the very first converts to the church, but recently he was really the first non-U.S. or Canadian apostle.
0: He's still a white man. But he's still a white
1: man. Yeah. So then Elder Suarez is really the first apostle who wasn't white-skinned, and Elder Gong has has since joined him with his, his Chinese-American heritage. But that's still 13 of the 15 right. apostles are white males.
0: You're not saying that needs to be said <laughs> is that they're still men.
1: And their still, Well, hang on, I was getting to that. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, we're getting to that point.
0: Carry on, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> uh,
1: and then among those who are eligible to become apostles, which you're drawing from the 70s, um, you have a more diverse uh, field that's 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 becoming uh, present. Um, you know, you, we have we have a more internationally representative uh, quorum of 70s, uh, and I'm, I applaud that. Um, What we still lack is is females and you had mentioned in one of your quotes and i had made a note on this too that occasionally white men will grant this limited power to someone that is not a white male in the effort to show that they are making progress and it's really a farce and for me that is the relief society um the the church has frequently touted the largest women's organization in the world, which may be true, but then they say, and they're self-governing. That's a lie. They're not
0: self governing They're not self governing Yeah.
1: Okay. And even within the Relief Society, they don't have the same power. They don't have decision-making power. It still rests in the hands of the 15 apostles and ultimately really in the hands of the one apostle that that we refer to as the prophet, they really still hold the power. The Relief Society is, in some ways, a nice organization, but any power that it has is absolutely a sham.
0: Well, and it it really, in some ways, the, those who are promoted to General Relief Society callings and uh, the other female callings are oftentimes promoted because they uphold the patriarchy. Yeah, and I don't know that they there's a consciousness behind that, but they're often called they're often called the guardians of the patriarchy because. Uh, they they will only be promoted because they uphold and sustain patriarchal power inside of the institution. And yeah, it's a it's a shame because this is not our heritage in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Clear up until the mid, it seems like it was in the Correlation Movement. So I'm talking about the 1960s. Uh, the Relief Society was in fact an organization that had its own voice. It was actually seen as Equal in power in many ways to to priesthood organizations, in that it had its own budget, and so it could spend its money as it desired without any oversight. It also had its own voice. It had its own publications that were not under priesthood oversight. And during correlation, uh, the correlation movement. It lost its voice and it lost its financial power, which of course is the ability to actually move, move the world and make change. And, and so in some ways, act for itself. So it has actually, we have moved backwards in our struggles with patriarchy and in, in our church. And that's a shame, of yep. course.
1: Yes, yeah, I, I agree.
0: Okay. Let me just end with a couple of, uh, end this section with a couple of things that uh, McLaren says, he says, authoritarian followers favor centralized power in a single individual party, religion, and ideology. They use fear of a real or concocted enemy so that their strongman can protect himself as their protector. They divide society based on a loyalty test to the strongman and his regime. They distort or distract from the truth to build and maintain unquestioning support for the strongman, and they suppress dissent by any means necessary. Any personal values, let me see here, hold on. Any personal values that authoritarian followers previously held are sacrificed one by one for the supreme value of all authoritarians winning by concentrating power in the hands of their group and its supreme leader. Winning becomes a singular end that justifies any means. And so what he's talking about here, of course, is that When we are in a system, and this is, of course, all of Christianity, we're not, you know, McLaren has no bone to pick with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But I think what he's helping us understand is that we, like many or maybe even most uh, Christian organizations, we really struggle with this idea of patriarchy and then concentrating a lot of power up the line and how it hurts people, how it hurts us as individuals. This is not this is not about Jesus and the way Jesus would want us to be in um, connection institutionally. Anything else, Dave?
1: No, I think that's a good.
0: Okay, good. so we just talked about ooh, what did we just talk about? Okay, we talked about the money. two the two reasons to to go, money and how much power money has over institutional religion and also white Christian Old Boys Network. Okay, let's let's move on. This is depressing. I'll tell you what, let's <laughs> move on to the two reasons to stay today. Okay. Uh, the first one, the first reason to stay here, is because of Christianity's legendary founder. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna let go, you go ahead and start this one off, Nate.
1: Okay. So one of the things that he he talks about is he he brings up this idea that there have been those who have questioned even the existence of Jesus Christ, and that perhaps he was uh, a, a a literary figure but not a true historical figure. And he goes on to talk about some things that are kind of interesting. So one of the things he talks about is, he says, look, when a a person lives and has a lot of influence and does a lot of good, one of the things that happens is that their legend kind of grows. And they some of the stories probably get embellished, and they probably get expanded but it's because the person had such a powerful influence over the people that what they're trying to relate is more their experience than necessarily the historic facts. And that's been one of the criticisms of a lot of biblical literature is that there's no way that the X, Y, Z could be true. And his point is you're probably right. X, Y, Z may not be true, but go back and listen to the intent of the stories there's a lot of really powerful messages that are being taught about a really powerful leader who had a lot of great influence on people. And he's kind of expanding an idea that we've talked about before too, which is this idea of myth. And myth does not mean made up stories to you know entertain us. Those are fables. Myths are stories that the story itself may not be a true story, but it teaches principles that are very true and very, very um, applicable throughout all ages and all cultures. And he believes that there's a lot of the stories of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, the stories about what Jesus did, and even stories from what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that have been amplified because God is great and God has done a lot of great things. And for him, that is a testimony that these things are true. There's truth behind those things. That's what I got out of that chapter.
0: Lovely. Thank you for that, Nathan. So he's talking about, just to circle back and and, um, heighten one thing that Nathan was saying, he's comparing the difference between biblical or, um, yeah, biblical literalism as opposed to biblical literary value. And in early stage development of of, uh, faith, many people, including ourselves on some level, believed kind of that everything was literal. (laughs) A seven-day creation, for example. Uh, Moses actually tapping his staff and the sea actually literally raising. And what we come to learn, the deeper we get into history, And the further on we get in our own spiritual and psychological development is that much of what we learn about in scripture, um, this can include uh, the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that Jesus Christ didn't exist, of course, but I'm saying that the way these stories are interpreted and sometimes maybe become embellished, and certainly including Old Testament stories. And even I think we could make this argument towards um, for the Book of Mormon itself, Mm -hmm. which is that these things hold deep truths. But they're true in a different way than maybe we originally thought right go ahead
1: so your point's a good one which is that some people stumble over the literalism yes that if you are caught up in the literalism and then you realize that the earth wasn't made in six days it can be shaking to your faith and so you're you're right in the sense that he points out uh, first of all literalism doesn't need to be a stumbling block and but he expands it from there to talk about how the stories are so incredibly powerful and the stories are so moving that it really is trying to communicate the followers of jesus's experiences with him and around him that are so powerful
0: yes yes and and they grow because people as they share the story and pass down uh, a lot of this um, in oral history form they become more and more expansive because as mclaren talks about these are um, jesus christ especially was uh extraordinary and legendary. And so things become expanded. And so things be, things are true, not because they technically are one, you know, they're not everything exactly happened as it was said, but they're true partly because they are so extraordinary and they teach us deep principles of truth. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that, Nathan?
1: No, I, I think that was good.
0: Okay. All right. So point number two for staying is because innocence is an addiction and solidarity is the cue. Now I thought this Particular point was very interesting. It was something that I have never thought about. And I actually had to read through this chapter a couple of times because it was such a new way of looking at my own journey, my own beliefs, my own um, way of thinking about Christianity. Yeah, but it was, it was, it, some of this was very much a review, but this chapter was like, oh, mm-hmm. I've never actually thought about it this way. So one of the things I'm going to go ahead and just sort of paraphrase what he's talking about here. I feel like in some ways I want to preface this by, I want to be careful here because um, as per usual, I've said this many times, but I'm going to say it again right now. There are some of us who feel to leave and that is okay. Now, these are Brian's words. So if you're going to get mad at somebody, get mad at him and not me. (laughs) (laughs) But what he's saying here is that to be able to leave is in and of itself a luxury of privilege. Right. And that because we have the ability to leave, that by definition means that I want to wash my hands of the complexity of this and not own it. And in so doing, I am leaving something that I could hold responsibility for and be an agent of change in, and and that by leaving, I am actually participating in what he calls the cult of innocence. Go ahead, take it away.
1: No. So the, the cult of innocence is an interesting term because at first he talks about how, how Christians have h- hidden behind the cult of innocence. So in other words, he talks about, for instance, a bumper sticker that I've seen many times, which says Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven, which is basically a way of saying I can do whatever I want because I'm hiding behind my Christian faith and it protects me from sin. And I will be saved regardless of how, how rotten I choose to be. And um, he's like, OK, so we've had this cult of innocence in Christianity that has shielded us from some of our rotten acts. He's like, but there's another cult of innocence. And the other cult of innocence is, okay, Christianity has some rotten acts. So if I walk away, I wash my hands of the rotten acts of Christianity. And he's like, that's not so. And I will use for my, an example of myself. When I was on my mission, I taught many things that were not true um, about the, the priesthood ban and the temple ban with regards to people of African descent. And I taught them that it was God's will given to the prophet, and it was because of the curse of Cain, and that someday they, that they would get it back. And I had not done my homework on where this had come from, and why it existed, and, and uh, you know, absolutely rotten nature of the whole thing. And so for me, once I discovered, oh, this was not true, this was based on cultural bias and some, and some racist leaders who got a lot of traction, I kind of have two choices. Do I wash my hands of it and say, oh yeah, shoot, I was deceived and I'm out? Or do I go back and say, no, I created some problems. I hurt some people. I said some things that were not true. I have a responsibility to leave this cult of innocence and to come back and be a voice for change and that's i think what you were getting at there is that is that when when we have done things that have been hurtful which i have done it is questionable as to whether or not it's okay to just walk away from it and say hey this was hurtful so i'm not going to be part of it or i did some things that were hurtful i need to undo those things. I need to be an agent for change. I need to apologize for things that I taught that were wrong and not well-researched. And that's what I think I got out of this idea of the cult of innocence and just walking away.
0: You're describing, Nathan, this idea, this embodied idea that we are all, in fact, a part of the body of Christ. And even in your example where you did this out of your own ignorance and naivete, right? Yeah. You still did it as part of the larger body of Christ, um, perpetuating harm hmm. on other innocent people, and so you could say, "Not my fault, not my problem, I'm out." Right. But in some ways, that is—you might argue, or at least I'm going to blame Brian for this one. He's basically <laughs> saying that's a cop out. Right. Right. He's uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's saying this. This is—I'm going to go ahead and just use his words. The alternative is deeper and better, but it's harder. The old-fashioned word for it is repentance. Soberly rethinking the past, facing it without minimizing it, grieving over it, feeling the full measure of the pain of victims, seeking to understand the conditions that prompted the victimizer to do what they did, seeking to address those conditions, healing the wounds, righting the wrongs, changing the systems that protected the wrongdoers, and joining with victims in a struggle for mutual liberation. It's only by doing this real work, this soul work, this holy work at this often agonizing labor of personal and social transformation and rebirth that we redeem the past and actually become better people, not innocent, not perfect, but good. He closes by saying, and I think this is super powerful. He says this, we can, we must seek treatment for and recovery from our addiction to instant sheep Convenient innocence so that we can deprogram ourselves from the innocence cult. From the innocence cult. Yeah, I said that right. Um, Which brings me, again, this is Brian speaking, at last to a candid confession. One of the prime reasons why I sometimes want to leave Christianity is to achieve innocence. By distinguishing myself from a discredited religion, I can feel innocent of its wrongs, its weaknesses, and its failures. Paradoxically, this confession gives me one of the most compelling reasons yet for staying Christian. Staying Christian is a way of leaving the cult of innocence. Oh, that just really, closing my quote here, that really hits me hard because I know that I have been the blind beneficiary of a lot of my own innocence. Mm -hmm. And now that I've had um, layer upon layer of awakening moments. And I know there are more to come. I feel compelled to be a voice of change because I have benefited from my own ignorance by not knowing these things, and by and and just by being blind to the the hurt that I have been um, complicit in through my own innocence and by walking away. In some ways, I don't think that's for me, at least, the most responsible and integrity based choice. Well said, babe. Okay. Anything you want to say? Before we close up our time together today, Nathan Hamaker,
1: I think you should do the closing <laughs> <share today. laughs>
0: because you've done one. <laughs> you feel like you've satisfied that requirement. Okay, fine. I'm used to it. Okay, and I mean, I mean this when I say it. Although I've said it many times, I love, I love this work that I'm getting to do with you. It is incredibly satisfying to feel as if I am being instrumental in um, not only my own ongoing rebirth process but also that I'm able to work with you, alongside with you, be with you, read your beautiful kind letters. I just got one today that said somebody had listened to 17 episodes in 15 hours of driving cross country. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they just said their hearts were full because um, they're going through their own restructuring of their own relationship with God and faith and um, how instrumental this kind of relationship is uh, that we are having with so many of you. And it is incredibly soul satisfying that we can be instruments in the hands of God in this kind of scary, but special and powerful way. We do this for you. The content that we create is sacred content. And we're so grateful for your ratings and your reviews, because this is such tender, sacred ground. uh, People have a hard time trusting that those of us who are speaking on the edge of the inside are credible, or that we have the, um, your best interests at heart for your own soul growth and um, for your becoming healthy and whole people. So those of you who write your ratings and reviews and um, share your own experiences are incredibly powerful in moving this work forward. We also uh, would want to invite you guys to jump onto uh, email at uh, info at valeriehammacher.com if you want to be put on a wait list for a small uh, to to be put part of a small community of folks that are processing, uh, their faith expansion experiences. I have one, uh, five days a week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If this is something that interests you, um, I will get you plugged into a group as soon as there is uh, space available. Also, I am in the beginning processes of creating online courses because we're not able to meet all the needs of people that want to be in groups. So I'm going to try to be, cre- I'm going to be, I am beginning to create courses so I just want to make you aware of that. If you want individual consults, I do time-limited consults uh, with individuals um, in or couples. And I also have colleagues that work with me for more long-term coaching. And so if you're interested in any of these options to go deeper into a relationship with, with the work that Nathan and I are doing, please reach out to us at info at com or on Instagram at Day Struggles Podcast. It is so good to be with each of you, and we will be back with two more episodes of this five-part series on Do I Stay Christian? Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.